Hi, welcome to the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil. And I'm Susie. And we're asking the question, if your theology were wrong, wouldn't you want to know? We want to start out with a trigger warning, content warning, as today's topic will delve into sensitive areas, including child indoctrination, child slavery, child psychological abuse. While we have no intention to be purposely graphic, we are cognizant that many people have experienced trauma in their lives, and we don't want to cause any undue psychological stress or damage. If these are topics that are sensitive for you, we look forward to having you back in our next episode. This episode is called The One with the Child Soldiers, and the reason we named it that is because we're going to talk about childhood indoctrination and how indoctrination can lead to extreme behaviors. So in one of my earlier posts, I referenced the idea of child soldiers. You've probably all seen these videos or pictures of kids in the back of pickup trucks in some jungle road with AK-47s, and you've probably wondered to yourself, well, how do these kids get to this point where they're brainwashed into participating, into storming into a village and just killing people? Obviously a multifaceted issue, which we're not trying to unpack child soldiers today, but we are going to talk about how those kids are manipulated into this type of service because they're convinced that their only option for their life and for their survival is to do what their warlord asked them to do. So we're going to dig into how it's similar to a child who's raised in a Christian home. So first, uh, yeah, we want to talk about what indoctrination actually is. Yeah, the official Oxford Language Dictionary, which is always a good place to start for anything, is that indoctrination is the process of teaching a person or group to accept a set of beliefs uncritically. The uncritically part is a huge thing. Right. Take it at face value, believe it, and then live it. I know for me, when I hear the word indoctrination, I have like a, a visceral reaction to that word. And I think if you talk to many Christians and said that what they're doing to their children in training up a child as a believer is indoctrination, they would argue with you pretty strongly. So we want to kind of talk about why that type of child rearing is indoctrination. And I think there is probably a sliding scale of indoctrination. You can have light indoctrination. You could have heavy indoctrination where the child being indoctrinated indoctrinated is trapped in a bubble. My level of indoctrination when I was a child was sometimes high and sometimes low. I wasn't in a bubble, but I was definitely told this is the correct worldview. Don't question it. So if you imagine indoctrination like a bubble, if you're inside the bubble, you're being indoctrinated. Inside the bubble with you are unsupported claims, mythology, shame and guilt, withheld information and misrepresentation of facts and the forced unquestioning acceptance of toxic doctrine. Okay, so outside the bubble, the child does not have access to are science and reason, critical thinking skills, informed decision-making, choice, and empowerment. When I was growing up, I had both of these areas. I was sometimes inside the bubble and sometimes outside the bubble. When I was outside the bubble, it really helped me see what was wrong inside the bubble. Yeah, and I think mine was probably always in the bubble. I don't think I even had any concept of life outside the bubble as a child, and probably not even until I got got into college or after college because I was in Christian education from kindergarten all the way through college. So you were always in private school? Always in private school because public school was evil, went to Christian college, went to a Bible institute, the whole thing. So I don't think I had even the concept that there was an outside world except for what I was told inside the bubble about what the outside world was, which of course was evil and scary. Uh. Us versus them. Yeah, a lot of us versus them. Outside is scary, inside is safe. One of the problems with indoctrination 
information is that it makes children into Christians or Muslims or whatever religion, if, if you want to draw the analogy to the child soldiers. So why is it acceptable to create a five-year-old Christian when it's obviously ridiculous to say my five-year-old child is a Republican <laughs> or a Marxist? Obviously, they don't have the cognitive abilities to declare themselves a Republican. They, they had not evaluated all the issues. So why is it okay to teach your children one specific worldview and say, is my child is this religion? Yeah. And if you guys are familiar with Rachel Held Evans, she was an instrumental part of my, the beginning of my deconstruction journey. She has since passed on, which is a very huge loss to the world in general. But she says, and I think in her first book, she talks about how really American children are basically winners of a geographical lottery when it comes to their faith traditions. If they were born somewhere else, the chances of them growing up to being evangelical Christians is much lower. You know, conveniently, if you're born in the U.S., you're a winner. <laughs> but if you're born anywhere else, there's no way you can win that lottery. So I found a lecture by a neuropsychologist, Nicholas Humphrey. It's fascinating. This is a quote from his lecture. Children, I'll argue, have a human right not to have their minds crippled by exposure to other people's bad ideas, no matter who these other people are. Parents, correspondingly, have no God-given license to inculturate their children in whatever ways they personally choose. No right to limit the horizons of their children's knowledge, to bring them up in an atmosphere of dogma and superstition, or to insist that they follow the straight and narrow paths of their own faith. That's a pretty strong statement. I love that. Yeah, I can, I'm trying to read that quote through the eyes of my parents, and they would agree with zero words in that uh, thing. They would say that parents actually do have a God-given license and actually a responsibility oh. to enculturate your kids in the ways that they believe. You know, they have supposed biblical basis for that, which we'll talk about some of the yeah. verses in the Bible that really indicate that indoctrination is okay. And no, it's required. Oh, yeah. And yeah, it's not just okay. It's required. So what we want to dig into first, after kind of defining what indoctrination is, is we want to talk about the age of reason and what's also known as the age of accountability in the world of Christianity. In cognitive development in science and how children grow up, there's basic child development milestones that kids develop at certain ages. And you could you could research this for a really long time. We're not going to go into a huge amount of detail about all the developmental milestones. So how old were you when you were saved? So I became a Christian, quote unquote, at age four. Oh. The age we're going to start at in this discussion is actually age five. You'll kind of see that at age four and five, there's nothing in these lists of developmental milestones that would indicate that I should have been willing, ready, or able to make this type of decision. Right. There's a couple of categories with these developmental milestones. There's thinking and reasoning, which basically is just like a child at age five is able to like know their address and phone number. They can recognize letters of the alphabet. They can count 10 or more objects. They understand the basic concept of time. I have like three aspects next to that one because a very basic understanding of time, which means they can't understand eternity. Mm. Oh, interesting. In the emotional and social realm, they want to please and be liked by their friends. Think about some of these and how they would relate to someone making a eternal decision. Want to please and be liked by their friends. You could probably include parents in there. Agree to rules most of the time. They show some measure of independence. They're more able to distinguish fantasy from reality, but still enjoy playing make-believe. Um, then there's the area of language. They can carry on a conversation. 
They often call people or objects by their relationship to others, such as Bobby's mom instead of Mrs. Smith. Based on those developmental milestones, at age five, children don't have the ability to cognitively understand the ramifications of a faith decision, or even understand anything other than the fear of something bad happening in the future. Do you remember your decision to become a Christian when you were four being fear-based? 165,000%. Okay. Like, if you've read my story, the way I came to faith was before I went to bed, my parents had been watching a particular TV preacher sermon that was on TV, and he had obviously talked about hell at the end of it and given an altar call and that whole thing. Those of you who grew up in evangelical world know exactly what I'm talking about. And I went to bed not really thinking anything of it, but then I was in bed, and all of a sudden I realized that I was really afraid of hell. And it wasn't the first time I had heard that phrase, but when you hear the loaded language that's in an altar call, like if you were to die tonight, do you know if you would wake up in heaven? That stuff weighs on you when you're four years old. So I remember coming out of my bedroom and saying to my parents, I don't want to go to hell. And my parents getting this look of joy on their face. Oh gosh! If I had a kid say that to me now, I would have horror on my face, you know? Yeah. So I remember kneeling down on the floor next to the couch. I can actually still see this couch. Like this is how like embedded in my head this is and praying to become a Christian so that I wouldn't go to hell. It was all about hell. And so when you were age, well, age four or five, and you had this thought, I don't want to go to hell. Your thought wasn't, I wonder if hell doesn't exist. I wonder if all the adults around me are wrong. Maybe I should look into this. No. That never crossed your mind. You were four. You trusted the adults in your life and your two options were go to hell or go to heaven. There was no other third option. Right. If you think about children's basic needs at that age, food, shelter, clothing, emotional care, that's all that's on our radar. So you're literally relying on your parents for survival. I don't know where I really read this point, but this really stuck out to me that a kid, you know, at this age, five to 10 or whatever, they can't not accept what their parents are teaching them because they can't go anywhere else. If I didn't want to believe in God at age five, what could I have done about it? Said no, like you don't have any autonomy. You don't have any ability to fight that. You can't reject your parents' religion and go and live on your own. I would have literally died, you know, if I just like, well, I'm leaving the house, (laughs) you know, I'm five years old. But the age of reason in cognitive science is is very well defined. Um, I'm going to read a little quote from um, Dana Dorfman, who's a PhD psychotherapist. Uh, She says that the age of reason refers to the developmental, cognitive, emotional, and moral stage in which children become more capable of rational thought, have internalized the conscience, and have better capacity to control impulses than in previous stages. Most of the accepted science says that this happens around seven to eight years old, neurologically. Their brain is able to kind of rationally think about things. Their temporal and frontal lobes have grown to a certain level that they can think a little bit differently. And that's kind of the age when kids may stop believing in Santa or the Tooth Fairy too. Right. Even though a child may have more critical thinking skills at around seven or eight, they don't have that emotional capability to say, no, I don't think I believe what the adults in my life are teaching me. I'm going to go research this on my own. So when I was 13 and I got confirmed, I didn't have a choice but to just accept what they were telling me, even though inside I did not accept it. I had to just pretend like I did and go through the motions. And so I think that at any age, a child is going to feel pressured to accept the indoctrination and any age, in my opinion, is too young. Yeah. 
What was the expectation? Like once you're confirmed at age 13, what's the expectation of that was basically levied upon you? Were you supposed to live differently now that you were confirmed? Or is it just like now it's official? You're Yeah, it's just now it's official. It's a huge process. So it's a two year long intensive class. And then it's like a ceremony during church and there's pictures and you have to wear the robe. You get like a candle or something and uh, Mm. your parents are all happy. Your aunts and your uncles come. (laughs) I mean, there's just nothing I could have done about it. It was going to happen whether I believed it or not. There's literally nothing I could have done. And you probably on some level, depending on where you are in thinking about these things, you're probably excited to do it on some level because you know that it's making the people who are important to you in your life, it's making them happy. I definitely did not want to disappoint my parents. But I remember feeling anxiety on the inside. Yeah. Because it felt disingenuous to me. Imagine at 13, maybe saying, I don't believe in God anymore. And what kind of a impact that would have on a 13 year old in a family that is expecting them to live Mm -hmm. and believe a certain way. So I know somebody who told me that when they found out that Santa wasn't real about age seven. So they said to their mom, Santa's not real. And this person's mom said, no. And he said, well, what about God? Is God real? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah. God's definitely real. And he said inside, he thought, hmm, I wonder how old you have to be before they tell you God isn't real. And <laughs> oh, he said after that, he never believed, not a, a day in his life, but he ha- he could never tell his parents. That's so interesting. He had to get confirmed too. Yeah. I grew up never believing in Santa. Santa was not a thing on my radar at all. It was like Christmas is about Jesus and you know some people believe in Santa. It wasn't that Santa was evil or anything like that. My wife and I were actually talking about this and saying, isn't telling someone about Santa, isn't that indoctrination kind of too? You've indoctrinated oh, yes. about Santa. And I was like, oh, yeah, it kind of is because like you're telling them that it's real. I I really struggle with the Santa thing. I feel like I'm in a therapy session right now. (laughs) My husband and I had this huge thing where a few years ago, I didn't want to tell the kids that Santa was real. I was like dropping them hints that he wasn't real. And same with the Easter Bunny and Tooth Fairy. And he was like, come on, just let them believe it's a fun part of childhood. And I couldn't really tell him why I didn't like the idea of telling them that that Santa was real. But I think it's because it felt too close to indoctrination. Now that you're saying that. Right. I said, it feels like lying. I told him it feels like lying. Yeah. That's how I felt about it too. Because I was like, okay, well, is it fun for the kids? Is it going to be devastating when they find out that it's not real? How do you bridge that gap? And it's funny because when you're talking about Santa, there's no eternal ramifications to the belief in Santa. But I'm still agonizing about this decision. You know, I have two younger kids still. If parents agonize over the idea of Santa, which has really no impact on their lives, shouldn't they agonize over teaching a kid about God and heaven and hell and their eternal destiny. Yes. At least do your homework and research whether it has foundations. Right. So that's the kind of the scientific cognitive age of reason. Then the Christians kind of have their own version of age of reason. Before this age, a child cannot be held responsible for accepting or rejecting Jesus. So if a child dies before this age of reason, they would automatically go to heaven. And is this biblical? So no, (laughs) I could not find the concept of the age of accountability, even in a concept in the Bible, really. So The other thing is that the age of reason differs depending on who you talk to. I think it's as early as they can get them. (laughs) Right. It's just based on whenever a given parent believes their kid can make the decision, which is when the kid makes the decision. (laughs) Then they're old enough to understand it. And this, I think, might differ by denomination because 
um, at least in my church with the Missouri Synod Lutherans, we had confirmation. And that's basically when you're making the choice. But we never really talked about getting saved. We didn't have that kind of language. Okay, interesting. Yeah, when we baptized babies, that saved them from going to hell. They believed that if you didn't baptize the oh. baby and they died, they would go to hell. It was like a holdover of you baptize the baby until they're old enough to accept Jesus in confirmation class. So that's basically like, like a fire insurance from age zero yes. to age 13 waiting yeah to bridge that gap i don't think i realized that the baptism was critical i guess i realized it was critical for salvation but i didn't think about it in the terms of age of accountability and yeah that's that's their coverage so then a, a family who didn't baptize their baby then those kids would die and go to hell if they died at age four but the baptized kid wouldn't Oof. no i didn't check the actual lcms doctrine but i remember people telling me this and i remember my pastor saying this kind of thing so at least that's what they believed at my church that's even more brutal I feel like then making a kid make a decision at a young age or encouraging it. Maybe they're equally brutal. I'm not sure. Like, But isn't it weird that like the baby would go to hell because somebody else didn't pour water over its head? <laughs> right. This might be a good time to bring up the, the recent priest that's been in the news. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who said his magic words wrong. I guess he discovered that he'd done something like 3,000 baptisms and he, he said one word wrong in all these baptism ceremonies and the Catholic Church said that all of his baptisms were illegitimate and and also it would mean that any other sacred rites for those people would also be null and void, which I find really interesting because does that include marriage? People have been living in sin. <laughs> right. This guy resigned because he was like, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. I can't handle it. But imagine imagine the weight of guilt that poor guy must have because he thought he was doing God's work. And he said, he said, we instead of I in the thing, we baptize you. Right. It, but that means that God can't see what's in somebody's heart. God can't see intentions. Right. He's hung up on word choice. And this is words that aren't even biblical. So it's words that the Catholic Church made up yeah. in the first place. It's like a magic spell. Yeah. You might as well be saying Expelliarmus. Yeah, it's like Harry Potter. But yeah, so there are a few verses, I guess, that are used as kind of the backing for this concept, but it's really limited. I'm going to read the actual verses because the one, I just can't even understand how they use this for accountability, or age of accountability. It's a real stretch. So it's from the book of Isaiah, and it says, Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both of her kings. Yeah, and that's part of the famous Isaiah prophecy. I don't even see how you get the age of accountability idea from this verse. Another passage they use is in Luke in the New Testament, where Jesus was 12 years old, and he was asking the religious leaders of his day profound theological questions. So they then extrapolate that to mean, well, Jesus could ask these profound questions at 12. So 12 is a good age of accountability. Jesus was divine. Allegedly. Well, right. That's, that's the problem I have with this. <laughs> right. Is that he was divine. So he, he had this innate theological knowledge. And everybody around him was astounded by the questions he was asking. So right. isn't that implying that he was out of the norm? Right. Another quote from John MacArthur, who, if you're not familiar with him, he's a huge evangelical pastor. And he said, in summary, the age of accountability is not clearly defined in scripture. I think it's up to parents every time a child wants to respond and open the heart to Christ, you need to encourage that all the way along until they come to that point where it's a genuine. And the Lord knows that even if you don't. When I read that, I kind of shuddered. Oh, well, you need to encourage that. Right. And they're even saying, even if it's not real, you just keep pushing it until it is real. Yeah. That is not giving the child any type of choice. So what's the problem? 
Yeah. So the problem is that by this logic, you could kill any child really before the age of reason and be doing it the biggest favor of its life. Obviously, that is something very extreme that we're saying just to make a point. We're not actually encouraging people to kill their children. But yeah, if you grew up in that mindset, how are you supposed to, as a child, develop normally and think, have positive self-esteem about yourself? I can't even imagine now looking back at it, how that idea of being a Christian was everything for who I was. It was who I was. I, I wasn't me. I was just a Christian. So you're saying that outside of the Christ identity that these children have no worth? Well, yeah, that's what it seems like to me looking at now, because you're like, if, if you're just going to die and go to heaven anyway, which is really, that's the only thing that matters in Christianity anyway, is what happens after you die. And then the other question that comes up is, well, what about kids who make this decision before age 12? Is that real? Do they need to keep getting saved every year? Right. That's a recurring theme on some of those podcasts that we listen to, like Graceful Atheists. These people keep getting saved over and over and over. Did that happen to you? Yes. And you never called it getting saved again. You called it rededication. Uh-huh. I mean, I was always afraid that I hadn't done it right. Yeah, let's talk about why indoctrination is important for the propagation of religion. Yeah, so indoctrination is a huge component of how religions survive. So if you've read The God Delusion, uh, I highly recommend it. But he talks about in his book that religions are like viruses of the mind that infect people when they are at their most vulnerable. So if you think about a belief system like an organism, like a biological organism, belief systems flourish or die out depending on how good they are at propagating. So they need to be better at propagating or reproducing than their competition. So competing belief systems, right? So it seems logical that the belief systems that survive are the ones that are better at implanting themselves into young, vulnerable minds that have no critical thinking skills. So the most severe cases of indoctrination, we already mentioned this, they remove any competition of other belief systems by putting the child in that bubble and removing both the means and the motivation to reverse the indoctrination or escape from the belief system. That's fascinating, especially from the idea of like it being a virus and living in the times that we live with a pandemic and what you learn about viruses and what they need to survive. If you think about a belief system like a virus, it makes perfect sense. It's looking for a host that it can replicate in, but not kill. Yeah. So the reason that kids are so vulnerable is because evolutionarily, we had to have this period of our lives when we are young that we believe everything that our parents tell us because literally we re relied on them for survival. Yes. So imagine like 100,000 years ago, you're living with the saber-toothed tigers and they live in the caves. I don't right. even know if humans and tigers live at the same time. Right. Don't quote me on that. When your parents say- Don't go outside. Yeah, don't go or don't go near that cave because a lion or a tiger, whatever, lives in there. Right. You're gonna listen because it, your survival depends on it. Right. But then that also means that your mind is open and vulnerable to these also crazy things that people believe. Right. And that applies today because you tell your kid to not touch the stove when it's hot. Yeah. They have to blindly accept that that's true and it's for their own safety and survival. Don't run across the street because there's cars. You'll get hit by a car. A really interesting example of the bubble is about the Amish. So the Amish people live in a very dense bubble. They're actually really close to me. You live farther away, but yeah, they're they're pretty close to me. And when we drive up there, we see them like on, in their buggies, like driving through the street. It's just so weird looking at all their farms and, and seeing how they dress. And it, it's just a really interesting way of life, but they are very, very isolated from everybody. Okay, so this is from the Nicholas Humphrey lecture that I mentioned earlier. An interesting test was provided in the 1960s by the case of the Amish in the military draft. The Amish have consistently refused to serve in the armed forces of the United States on grounds of conscience. 
Up to the 1960s, young Amish men who were due to be drafted for military service were regularly granted agricultural deferments and were able to continue working safely on their family farms. But as the draft continued through the Vietnam War, an increasing number of these men were deemed ineligible for farm deferments and were required instead to serve two years working in public hospitals, where they were introduced, like it or not, to all manner of non-Amish people in non-Amish ways. Now, when the time came for these men to return home, Many no longer wanted to do so and opted to defect. They had tasted the sweets of a more open, adventurous, free-thinking way of life, and they were not about to declare it all a snare and delusion. These defections were rightly regarded by Amish leaders as such a serious threat to their cultural survival that they quickly moved to negotiate a special agreement with the government under which all their draftees could in future be sent to Amish-run farms so that this kind of breach of security should not happen again. Suppose that, as the Amish case suggests, young members of such a faith would, if given the opportunity to make up their own minds, choose to leave. Doesn't this say something important about the morality of imposing such a faith on children to begin with? I think it does. In fact, I think it says everything we need to know in order to condemn it. That's really interesting. If you have visited some of the um, museums or the Amish farms and stuff where you can go that are kind of more touristy, there's a certain sense of wonder of like, oh, it's really cool that they were so self-sufficient. But a lot of those places gloss over the religious indoctrination. Mm -hmm. And you've seen all those their shows on now about Rumspringer and what happens when, <laughs> when kids leave the farm and all that kind of stuff and how they're treated. And I tried to look up more about this. It's cited in the article that I was reading, but it it looked like it was in a book, so I couldn't locate the book. To wrap up that topic, the idea of indoctrination is really central, and it's really ne a necessity for a, a religion or a belief system to survive and thrive. You can't do it when you give people free choice, and you can't give people a whole bunch of religious options and then say, hey, you pick the best one. Kind of That's why so many fringe beliefs die out or other religions die out, because they didn't have this indoctrination piece or evangelizing wasn't part of their religion, or there wasn't punishment for not being that religion, or there wasn't an eternal reward. Like there's these aspects of our religion that make it easy to propagate. Right. Christianity has all those aspects, indoctrination, punishment, reward. Have you watched any of the um, series that are on now about Scientology? Oh, I did like a two-year deep dive in Scientology before I started deconstructing. Yeah, super interesting. And I, when I watched, um, I watched a couple different series about it. And the more I looked at it, I was like, oh man, this isn't that different than how I grew up. I didn't have to go serve on a ship yeah. or go to- Sign an eternity contract. <laughs> right. I didn't have to go to a compound in California. And I didn't ever feel like I couldn't leave, but it just never crossed my mind. But it, the principles and stuff were really- similar. And most people you would talk to and say, oh yeah, Scientology is wacky. But then you say, well, Christianity is the same thing or same idea. They'd be like, oh no, 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 no. It's totally different. So honestly, Scientology played a big part in my deconstruction. It felt safer to me than actually dismantling Christianity or taking a really close look at it. Hmm. And as I was reading and learning about it, I was subconsciously drawing these parallels between Scientology and Christianity. And by the end, it had really brought my willingness to examine Christianity way up because I thought, well, Scientology, it's obviously fake. It's a cult. It's made up by people. Why isn't Christianity? Christianity also fake right. cult made up by people. I really need to look into this. Right. So I'm glad you brought this up because we have a list of characteristics of a cult that it's a pretty long list, but we are not going to go into all of them. We're only going to look at the ones that are associated with indoctrination. These are the characteristics of a cult. 
questioning, doubt, and dissent are discouraged or even punished. So would you say that's accurate in terms of most religious upbringings? Oh, for sure. You can not You can ask a question as long as you come to the right conclusion. I didn't even feel like I could ask questions. Like I remember trying to and well, remember I couldn't get, He, my pastor said I couldn't get confirmed if I didn't believe it. And all I did was ask questions. I was just asking questions and I never said I didn't believe it. Right, right. Mind numbing techniques such as meditation, chanting, speaking in tongues, denunciation sessions. I don't know what that is. That's like where you denounce something and say, oh, I won't do this. I won't do that. You know. Okay. Uh, debilitating work routines. We never had that. But Scientology does. Right. <laughs> Are used to suppress doubt about the group and its leaders. Mind numbing techniques. Uh, when I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, because sometimes I would look around church and think, what are we doing? Like, this is so weird. <laughs> we're all chanting the yeah. same thing week after week in unison. We're just chanting what we're, we're reading in this bulletin. Why are we doing this? And as soon as that thought would right. pop up into my head, I would push it right back down because it was so uncomfortable. Right. For me, the mind numbing technique is musical worship. Ah. The more I dug into how music is used as a manipulation tool, that's mind numbing. And there's a lot of very interesting studies about how you can get the same physiological and emotional response from non-Christian music that you can get from Christian music if you use the techniques. And a lot of Christian worship leaders are using these same emotional manipulation techniques in the context of worship, which makes them even more powerful when you throw the idea of a deity on top of it. So did you ever speak in tongues? Never got to tongue speaking. I did eventually get to a, you know, a fairly emotionally expressive church where I got comfortable raising my hands in worship, but that's okay. about it. <laughs> the leadership dictates sometimes in great detail how members should think, act, and feel. This one definitely applies. They tell us what to think. They tell us what to believe. They tell us what to feel. Lutherans are very non-feeling. They don't like feelings at all. Oh, for sure. Like your whole life is basically mandated of what you can do, like who you're supposed to marry. Dating is only, you only date for the purpose of marriage. You know, you can't have sex before you get married. And when you get married, you know, all that kind of stuff, how you discipline your children. Right. And this also applies with parents telling their children to think this way. So there's a polarized us versus them mentality, which causes conflict with the wider society. And this goes with keeping those kids in the bubble. I didn't have this too bad, but there was definitely a stigma against non-believers or atheists that always kept me thinking, oh, I don't want to be that. Right. I have to find a way to believe because I don't want to be that. Yeah. And that us versus them thing is where you get a lot of the militants in Christianity where everything is a battle. You know, you're always in some kind of spiritual warfare against principalities and powers and rulers in high places, but there's no proof for any of that stuff. It's an imaginary war that people fight in their own heads, but there's even songs about it. Yeah. Honored Christian soldiers. No, yeah, exactly. There's an actual war going on in Ukraine right now, and I see Christian people posting about pray for the Christians of Ukraine. Yeah, just the Christians. <laughs> Not all of them are saying that, but some of them are. Yeah, no, but it's like the whole idea of like, well, the only people that God care about in any kind of conflict realm are the Christians. And you're automatically set up for this us versus them, in versus out. And I definitely had this growing up. And I mean, even in, in some ways, I'm actively working against this us versus them thing now, you know, like growing up Baptist, even inside of the grander thing of Christianity was still a them. Catholics, not Christians. Like if in my childhood, you wouldn't have been a Christian. Lutherans, not Christians. Oh, fascinating. The us versus them. It, it's like a battle or war. And how do you win a war? More soldiers. Right. How do you get more soldiers? By indoctrinating your children. And that's why uh, childbirth and, you know, restrictions on birth control and all that stuff are so important because you need more soldiers. That's so true. So the next is leadership induces guilt feelings in members in order to control them. 
100%. Felt a lot of guilt, yeah. And members are encouraged or required to live and or socialize only with other group members. So this is keeping them in the bubble, keeping your kids in the bubble. In the bubble. I don't know if you had that as much as I did, but like I went to church. I went to Christian school. I went to Sunday school. I went to Wednesday night church. I went to Awana. Literally my whole life was Christian people. So I never was exposed to anyone outside of the bubble. And it was viewed normal. Right. That was normal for you. And I'm really actually fortunate that my parents did not do this to me. They taught me the faith, but I went to public school my whole life. I majored in something scientific and they were totally fine with that. They they always encourage my scientific inquiry. And when I would ask them about, well, what about dinosaurs and the six-day creation? How does that jive with the age of the earth and everything? And they would just say, well, I don't know. They, they never said like, huh. oh, well, because the scientists are wrong. I mean, so in some ways, you didn't experience like indoctrination to the fullest extent. Definitely but not. But you still felt that like guilt and shame and that pressure. Yeah. Which goes to show you that even like you were talking at the very beginning with the levels of indoctrination, even light indoctrination is damaging. It's harmful. Yeah. Oh, definitely. So yeah, those are some of the ways, those are characteristics of a cult. And we'll actually put the link to where we got the full list of these characteristics in the show notes. You can pick apart these things and say, oh, well, Christianity doesn't do this, or it's not indoctrination because of this. But if you're willing to look at these lists, you'll see that there's a lot of similarities between what you would consider a cult, which everyone agrees cults are crazy, but not everyone agrees that Christianity is a cult or that it's crazy. So our goal is to kind (laughs) of show you there's really some similarities there that you should think about. So how about the Bible? Does the Bible have anything to say about indoctrination? Yeah, I found a bunch of verses that support the concept of indoctrination. And this is not an exhaustive list. I just picked my three favorites. The first one is in Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This one I really loved because we proved this wrong. And so did like thousands of other people who were brought up as Christians and left. Right. Deuteronomy 4, 9 through 10. Do not let these memories escape from your mind as long as you live and be sure to pass them on to your children and grandchildren. Never forget the day when you stood before the Lord your God at Mount Sinai, where he told me, summon the people before me and I will personally instruct them. Then they will learn to fear me as long as they live and they will teach their children to fear me also. Hello. And then I wrote... Ugh, in big letters after that. <laughs> and there's a lot more verses along that line in the Bible. It's just, it just goes to show you that we're not making this up. That Christians are feel like they're commissioned by God to do this work of indoctrination. Oh, for sure. And they just don't call it indoctrination. No. They call it education or training or child rearing. What are some of the the harms of indoctrination? We have kind of a long list here, and there's probably even more than these. So I'll talk about this study that I found. I actually heard about it on a Thinking Atheist podcast. So the process of indoctrination can damage a child's critical thinking skills and make it more difficult for them to differentiate between reality and fantasy. So there was a paper in Cognitive Science, and it was published in 2014. They did two studies where five and six-year-old children were questioned about whether the main character was real in three different types of stories. 
So here were the results of the study. Children who went to church or were enrolled in a parochial school or both judged the protagonist in religious stories to be a real person, whereas secular children with no exposure to religion judged the protagonist in religious stories to be fictional. Children's upbringing was also related to their judgment about the protagonist in fantastical stories that included ordinarily impossible events, whether brought about by magic or without reference to magic. Secular children were more likely than religious children to judge the protagonist in such fantastical stories to be fictional. The results suggest that exposure to religious ideas has a powerful impact on children's differentiation between reality and fiction, not just for religious stories, but also for fantastical stories. So I just read that basically from the abstract of the paper. But one of the interesting things that came out of the study was that so if children are born basically knowing that there's a God or that they can look around them and see the world as designed and purposeful, and if they are predisposed to believe in a God, if that's true, then the non-religious kids would not show a difference between the religious kids in terms of believing in the miraculous events and the divine intervention. But that's not what they found. So I don't know if that means that, hmm. you know, are we born believers or are we born atheist I, I don't think this paper answers it but it's an interesting question yeah so that's definitely definitely harmful if you can't differentiate be between reality and fantasy and if you're exposed to this for your like your whole childhood and then you get into the adult world and you still can't differentiate between reality and fantasy that could have some pretty dastardly consequences <laughs> an example of this is i know somebody who is catholic and subscribes to that auto league i don't know exactly what it's called you pay a monthly fee and you get like a little medallion that you put in your car that's supposed to protect you oh yeah i think my grandparents were in that they had like a little it was like a medallion of a particular yeah, saint exactly that you would keep what in is your going on at your house you. oh i think my children are crying behind the closed door it's just a weird concept to me that you could pay money and get protection in return. But people who are who have been indoctrinated their whole lives, they don't see an issue with that. I think that's one of the results of being indoctrinated. So we touched on this already, but when children reach the age of reason, quote unquote, age of reason, they're often pressured to confirm their beliefs in a public religious ceremony or get baptized. At this age, they may be starting to doubt the beliefs they inherited, but they feel obligated due to familial pressures to conform. So this whole process can cause a lot of anxiety and resentment within the child, like it did for me. I have firsthand experience with this. I guess you were four years old and too young to really understand the push and the pull of differing um, worldviews. Oh yeah, we definitely had that pressure for the public ceremony, but ours is more about the baptism instead of confirmation. When do you get baptized? Well, there, again, there's no set age for that too. It's like whenever you think you're ready. Oh. So I I think I'm pretty sure that I was eight or 10 when I got baptized. I, I think my mom actually just sent me my baptism certificate in the mail the other day because she's trying to like mess with my head because now that she knows I'm a heathen. Yeah, I just got one of those two from my mom. Oh, she slipped fun. it into a bunch of papers. I don't know if she did it um, intentionally or yeah. not, but <laughs> I kind of laughed and said, oh, here's my childhood indoctrination certificate. <laughs> That's hilarious. Another harm of indoctrination is that children grow up to start fearing or have having prejudice against uh, women, LGBTQ+, and maybe other groups like racial groups. Um, the list could go on. You can justify any kind of prejudice or bias if you think you have the Bible to support you on that. This again goes back to that us versus them thing. There's no limit to the them. <laughs> Everyone is an enemy. Oh, it's so sad. And it's so exhausting. I remember this was a couple of years ago now, and I guess it maybe has died out a little bit. Remember, but remember when Target was going to start allowing transgender people to use the bathroom that they yeah. associated with? Yeah. Remember the uproar about it? This was war. Like this was like our, this was the end of our society. I heard Christians say, oh, our country will never survive if transgender people can go in the bathroom. You know, it, it has been really freeing to say, no, I accept everyone. 
to have that mental baggage yeah. off of you and not have to always have something against that group or that group or that group. I was trying to be Christian and mm -hmm. thinking, well, the Bible does say that it's wrong. And I would try to justify things like, but right. it's not hurting anyone. And then I don't know the Bible says, and everybody around me says. If you've heard a lot of people's deconstruction stories, a lot of people will say, one of the early cracks was I met a gay person and they were a really amazing, nice, loving, caring, kind person. And I didn't think that was possible because of what I believed. That wasn't part of my deconstruction thing. I My last church that I went to was very open and affirming and there was a lot of LGBTQ plus people there and they were all amazing people. I was kind of already past the point of thinking that they were all going to hell. But man, that indoctrination is so deep in you. I would still look at gay couples. I would still have an internal cringe from it because of that programming, even though I didn't believe it anymore. And it just shows you I'm 45 years old and that is still in my head. Okay. So story time. This is an example of the harms of this. When I was younger, I don't remember what grade I was in, but I had a really good friend. So a really, really close friend. And there were some rumors swirling around that he was gay. I didn't think he was, but I remember telling my best friend, well, if he is gay, I'm not going to be his friend anymore. And she looked at me like, what? Are you kidding? Like oh, you would not be his friend because of that. And I was like, well, yeah, obviously. He's gay. I can't be friends with a gay person. It's what I heard at church. It's what I heard at home. Right. It's what's in the Bible. And at that point, I was trying, I think I was probably eighth or ninth grade. You know, I was trying to be a, a better Christian. But now I look back at that and I cringe. And he is gay now, that friend. Yeah. He is gay. He's married to a, to a man. And thankfully, I never unfriended him because of that. Yeah. And if you think about like the rates of suicide and self-harm that people in those communities deal with every day because of the amount of hate yeah. and stuff that they have to endure from the supposedly loving Christians. How horrible would that have been of me, uh, one of his good friends, to cut him off because of that? How would that have made him feel? And imagine if he was like not secure in who he was and he killed himself. Exactly. That's damage. People are dying from this kind of hatred. Yeah. It's not something that we should be taking lightly. And it's part of the reason where why I feel like we have to do podcasts like this because people have to understand how damaging this stuff is. It's not, it's not something that happens in isolation. It's not something that, oh, your beliefs are your beliefs. They don't affect anyone. They do, you know, and that's why we, we can't just like leave people alone when they believe things that are harming and damaging. Right. Not only was I damaged by the indoctrination, but I could have damaged my close friend. And that is what really bothers me. Absolutely. Next, children will fear hell. We've been touching on this the whole time, but I found a quote by John Shoemaker, an Australian psychologist who described his own Catholic boyhood. He says, I believed wholeheartedly that I would burn an eternal fire if I ate meat on a Friday. I now hear that people no longer spend an eternity in fire for eating meat on Fridays. We're picking <laughs> on Catholics here, aren't we? Yeah. Yet I cannot help thinking back on the many Saturdays when I rushed to confess about the bologna and ketchup sandwich I could not resist the day before. I usually hoped I would not die before getting to the 3 p.m. confession. Oof. And thankfully, he's an atheist now, so he doesn't have that fear of hell. Or maybe it's a lingering fear of hell. I don't know. Yeah. But a lot of times when people, even though if they don't believe it anymore, they still have that lingering fear in the back of their mind because it's so hard to get rid of. It's just so hardwired in your brain that you have that neural pathway that's already wired. And it's so hard to unwire that pathway. For me, I had rapture fear. I had hell fear. I always had the fear that I wasn't saved enough or that I hadn't prayed the prayer the right way like that poor priest. <laughs> the rapture fear was terrifying for me. Like, 
if I ever came downstairs and there was no one home, I had problems. I had nightmares about it. Like I was just a kid. Kids are already afraid sometimes of being alone. Yeah. You know, like I have young kids now and a couple of them struggle with anxiety and, and night terrors and stuff like that. I can't imagine to compound those fears that a child might already have about their life with the idea of eternal damnation. And this is where I feel like we're getting into the territory of psychological child abuse. 100% child abuse to harm them in this way and cause all these fears. Am I, like a rapture? I cannot believe that somebody would put that worry on a child. That you had to deal with that is horrible. I'd be looking around for piles of clothes in my house because I was taught that when the rapture happened, you would leave your clothes behind, which makes a lot of sense of naked people flying through the sky. Oh my gosh. I shit you not. I was looking around for piles of clothes in my That's house. That's hilarious. It's sad. Yeah. I mean, it's funny now when you tell the story, but imagine being eight. You know, if you wanted to play a joke on your brother, you would put piles of clothes around with like shoes and like clothes right. on top. Per and Yeah. You would really make it look like they just vanished and everything yeah. fell in a perfect, uh, yeah. This is so new to me. Lutherans never had a thing about the rapture. I don't think that yeah. they believed in it. I never really heard about it until I joined this like deconstruction community. Yeah, eschatology and the end time things was really big. Wait, eschatology? I thought that was like poop jokes. <laughs> That's, scat that's scatological. I don't know what that is. Yeah, eschatology is the study of end time things. All right, what else do we have that's harmful in religious indoctrination? That it teaches the skill of holding on to an unsupported belief, even when there is evidence to the contrary. So this is what we would call confirmation bias. If you listened to our last episode, you would already know about this. But once the skill of having a confirmation bias is learned, this child may grow up to believe all sorts of things that are misinformed, like, um, I don't know, we're going to pick on a few here. Yeah. Anti-vaxxers, science deniers, um, yeah, young earth creationists. Theories. Yeah, conspiracy theorists. We never landed on the moon, the earth is right. flat, th those kinds of things. I like how you we call it a skill because you actually are learning something because of repetition. Yeah. But the beautiful part is that it is something that can be unlearned, but it's very difficult. So if the child is fortunate enough to have some kind of rationality, they may discover that what they have been taught all their life is not true. Okay, so this process is really treacherous, the journey out of religion. The process of unlearning a worldview can lead to a loss of sense of identity. It can cause family rifts. It can lead to isolation, loss of trust in caregivers. If, you know, if you're a child still, this can happen when you're a child. I've, I've read stories about, you know, teenagers deciding they're atheists and mm -hmm. it causing problems. And, you know, it's just really harmful when you are losing a family and a support structure there. It seems like it's a conditional type of, uh, not for me, I did not lose my family. Right. You know, my family still loves me. They're, they're unconditional. I think the yours is too, but I don't want to speak for you. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times, with especially with these more severe types of indoctrination, these more severe cases where the children have been living in bubbles, if they choose to move out of that bubble, you better believe the family will not be following them outside of that bubble. The family piece is probably one of the hardest parts of coming out of indoctrination because you have to weigh, well, what are the consequences of making this decision? Now, as adults, we can kind of make that decision and say, okay, am I willing to risk this with my family? But like, still, your family is like the last person you tell about you don't believe in God anymore. Like I literally yeah. just told my family about this like not that long ago. They found out, right? <laughs> One of my sisters knew because I told her directly, but then parents found out in an indirect way. Um, and then I just laid it on them. And I can't say that the relationship hasn't changed because it has. It hasn't 
for me because I know I've been dealing with this and I've been trying to maintain a relationship with them, but I know it has for them because we don't have the same kind of conversations. And, you know, I get mailings with things from my childhood. And <laughs> so you know, I get books sent to me and stuff. Texts with podcasts that I should listen to and yeah. you know, all kind of stuff like that. It's, it's all very subtle and I know they mean well. Honestly, I don't blame them for what they did. They were doing the best they could with what they had. At this point, it's like, I don't blame you for it, but I'm not going to do it to my kids, you know? <laughs> so, no, exactly. Yeah. I think the last um, harm we're going to talk about is about that indoctrination as part of a culture allows for an increased occurrence of abuse. Um, and this is the part, you know, where we gave the trigger content warning. Like the the bubble allows a environment where abuse can happen that can go unchecked. And it's not just sexual abuse, even though that is a thing. You know, there's psychological abuse, there's physical abuse, and then children of that type of environment can then grow up to be abusers. So you have this cyclical thing where it just keeps on going. They think it's normal. Yeah, you think it's normal. You're like, well, that's how I was disciplined. That's how I was raised. I was actually on another podcast that a friend of ours, I think you know, Jack Robertson, he talked mm -hmm. about the Duggar abuse scandal in one of his podcasts. And that was IFB, Independent Fundamentalist Baptist, and the big scandal that came out there with their family and the child sex abuse that was going on there. And it looks shocking to the world because people think, oh, these people are religious. But like, if you grew up in that thing and came out of it, that kind of stuff makes perfect sense. You see how it happens because there's no accountability in that kind of indoctrinated bubble. It's all handled internally. Yeah. It makes it very dangerous for, for kids who grow up in that. And I don't think we even need to mention the Catholic priests. Right. I mean, everybody already knows about that and how they are not turned into authorities. They're just shuffled from church to church or parish to parish. And right. so there's just a whole bunch of child abusers floating around. Yeah. It's terrifying, honestly. And it, it makes me so sad. Sick to my stomach. Yeah. So we're going to wrap up the section of harms with, this is just a list actually from Jim Palmer, who is a former evangelical pastor. He's got a master's of divinity. He's an author. He writes a lot from a deconversion standpoint, but he posted this list of 10 ways that toxic religion damages children. So the first one is telling kids that they are born into this world intrinsically bad, absent of inherent worth and repulsive to God is tremendously damaging. Yes. Uh, yeah. We used to repeat the words, I am a poor, miserable sinner in church over and over and over. Right. Telling kids that their sinfulness is so bad that it left God no choice but to brutalize, torture, and execute his only child. Yeah, that's a concept that a kid should never have to even hear about. Telling kids that their most natural inclinations are deceitful and that they should not trust their own thoughts and feelings. Lean not on your own understanding, right? Mm -hmm. Using fear and shame to manipulate kids into adopting certain beliefs and practices related to God. Teaching kids that the rejection, hatred, or diminishment of unbelieving or different believing humans is a sign of devotion to God. So us versus them. Yeah. Teaching kids that it is wrong to question people in authority, particularly religious leaders or teachers. Oh my gosh, I could go on and on about that. Yeah. Teaching kids that sexual thoughts and desires are bad and should be repressed and that sexuality is a violation of God's holiness. Yeah. Purity culture. Mm -hmm. Failing to equip kids with the skills for free, independent, and critical thinking. Causing traumatic and disturbing feelings inside kids by telling them that lost loved ones, friends, and other significant people in their lives who are not believers are suffering in the internal torment of God's wrath and hell. Oh, that's a hard one. Your grandma didn't believe, so she's in hell. Like That's horrible. Yeah. Teaching kids that self-denial, self-sacrifice, and selflessness is the hallmark of true discipleship and maturity. Yeah, it's that whole idea of like, if you deny yourself, then that's actually what makes you a good person. So anything that you do that's good for you is actually bad. And this is like stripping the kids of their identity. Right. Right. 
So let's turn this a little more personal and let's talk about our own kids. So my daughter was in Christian preschool from the ages of three through five. And the reason is because there are no preschools around here that are not religious. And it was a great school. The only thing I didn't like about it was the religious aspect, but the school itself was great. Um, My son went to Christian pre-K and kindergarten. This was actually at the church we went to. He was going to church on Sunday and then he had, he was there Monday through Friday. So he was there a lot. Yeah. I switched him to public as soon as I could. There was a story about why we couldn't get him in public. I won't go into it. But so even though I was nominally a Christian, I was always so uncomfortable when they came home with all that religious, like the the lessons and you know the weekly Bible verses and everything. Mm-hmm. I was supposed to be a Christian, so I couldn't say, I don't like this. I couldn't say to my husband that I had concerns about it. But looking back, it's because it, it was indoctrination and I didn't even know whether all this stuff was true. And so that's right. why I felt so wrong about sending my kids someplace where they were learning that it was true. And you know, I also never said the words to them that the Bible is true or that God is real. And I remember remember we went to my mom's house one time and she was reading him a book and it was a book about God and my son said well who is God and I was like oh crap (laughs) she's gonna know like I haven't been teaching him she must have been mortified that he was like I don't know three or four and didn't know about God yet right right Uh, so they both remember a lot of the Bible stories and, and things and we caught it early enough so that the indoctrination was not permanent. Mm-hmm. So what about you? What What is your situation? Similar, very similar, because I have a blended family. So my wife had two children and then we've had two together. All of them, except for the current three-year-old, have been in church preschools too, for the same reason. There's no preschool that's not religious, which if you even think about that, like churches know, like, um, let's get these kids early. We've lucked out that all the ones that they've gone to were very light on the indoctrination. You know, they did some coloring sheets and the one that my uh, four-year-old goes to now is a, it's a Methodist church. So they're fairly progressive and but you know they still have chapel and they still do prayer and we've gone to a couple of the little programs where they sing songs and I've bitten my hand a couple times because the songs are not gross or anything but they're you know religious and I'm just like I hope she doesn't really know what she's singing about my daughter would would come home singing songs too yeah yeah yeah. and I have to amend my statement that there are non-religious preschools in our area but they're so expensive so we didn't even look at them right my stepkids that are they're now nine and eleven, they weren't really exposed to church at all except for a preschool. And then when I was in my last faith community, they had a kids program there. It was not indoctrinating at all because it was very progressive. So it was more about God is love and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So my older kids now ask sometimes about religious things, and my wife and I both are like, that's something you can figure out for yourself later. Perfect answer. Yeah. Our answer for a lot of things are, well, some people believe that. So it's it's an easy way for us to not say, here's what you should believe, but here's what some people believe. So, uh, and like I was saying earlier, like since they don't have to think about eternity and religion, the anxiety and things that they deal with, they can focus on that from a psychological standpoint, like with a professional, as opposed to me sending them to the pastor where they can just say, oh, you just need to pray more Ugh. or you just need to believe more. Read your Bible more. If we're not going to be indoctrinating our kids, how do we educate them? Yeah. And I've thought a lot about this over the past year or so. Yeah. Yeah, me too. (laughs) So I think that one thing we can do is teach them about all world religions in a factual, unbiased manner. Show them how religions are developed. And I think it's important to show the similarities between, you know, Yahweh, the ancient Hebrew religion versus the religions of neighboring regions in the ancient Near East. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to see where it comes from. When I was indoctrinated, I never learned about the origins of Jewish faith or or Christianity. And if I had, I probably wouldn't necessarily have bought into it. Uh, That's something new to me, too. I've been reading some blogs and some things about 
ancient mythologies and the parallels are so obvious it's like man i wish i would have known seen this when i was younger the noah flood story yeah they're all the same the, the garden of eden story there's so there's so many parallels to other stories in mythology yeah it's important to show where things came from yeah um another thing that um i know we both do i think is talk about science and biology and the universe uh, we've been watching that show Cosmos, which is based on the book by Carl Sagan. And it's fascinating. Like, I love watching that stuff. And my, I'll watch it with the kids and they ask questions. A lot of it is like over my head sometimes. It's like, well, let's pause and let's talk about it. And That's how I heard about quantum entanglement ah. <laughs> in the last episode. Oh, nice. So <laughs> you I, remember that episode where- um, We haven't gotten that far. Where I think we're only like three episodes into it. Oh, I think it's in the second season. Okay. It's, it's so fun. It's a great show. Yeah. And I really like how he talks about time and like how our time on the this universe is like this tiny little dot in the grand scheme of, you know, the whole universe. So I think that's really important talking about science, biology, the universe, giving rational and scientific explanations for things that happen, not not giving them fantastical explanations. And another thing that show does really well is highlight the importance of critical thinking. Mm -hmm. Watching Cosmos is a good way to foster a sense of wonder in our kids. And that's one of the things that I've been trying to do is really emphasize with the kids that no question is off limits. No question is dangerous. Right. And they should have a curiosity about everything. Yeah. So Nicholas Humphrey, who I think this is the third quote <laughs> that I've quoted him today, he says, therefore, we should feel as much obliged to pass on to our children the best scientific and philosophical understanding of the natural world to teach, for example, the truths of evolution and cosmology or the methods of rational analysis as we already feel obliged to feed and shelter them. So he's putting these truths on the same footing as food and shelter. It's just as important. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And then lastly, I think explaining the idea that what someone believes is often based on where they were born, who their parents were, and encourage them to be accepting of other people's beliefs, but also not being afraid to challenge them in a respectful manner. Every family is different, and there's not really one that's better than the other, you know, and trying to find the good in other people is very important when you're educating your kids, because that's a skill that's going to translate to other aspects of their life. It's not just about religion. It's about that other people's beliefs matter, and even if you think they're wrong, there's still a way to be respectful respectful of that person without being mean, without being aggressive, without judging them. That's something you don't learn when you're indoctrinated. And not just beliefs, but we can extrapolate that to people's identities. Like gay people mm -hmm. don't stop being friends with somebody just because they're gay. I wish I could go back in time and tell myself that. Right. In conclusion, this has been a long episode. We hope that it's been informative. Hopefully we didn't ramble too much. Um, but in conclusion, I think the only thing we really want to say is that there is a difference between teaching and education and indoctrination. Indoctrination preys on the extremely malleable mind of a child. It really destroys their ability to critically think. Basically ask yourself, am I encouraging critical thinking or am I encouraging dogma? That's a good litmus test. As parents, you, you have an obligation to teach your kids, but make sure that you're actually teaching and that you're not indoctrinating. The things that we teach should be justified with evidence and have a basis and a foundation and shouldn't be unverified assumptions. We should not be shielding our kids from other belief systems and exposing them to only one worldview. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil. And I'm Susie. Tune in next time where we will continue to tackle the question, if your theology were wrong, wouldn't you want to know? Follow us at flawedtheologypodcast.com and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Rate and review us on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. We will be posting a lot of the things that we referenced in the show notes. See you next time. Thank you.
while we have no intention to be intentionally. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Well, we have no intention right. to be intentionally graphic. <laughs> <laughs> or redundantly redundant. Or redundantly redundant. That's what you get for not proofreading my crap. No. Where are you being, grammar bitch? Damn. Okay. Give me a second. Why do you do this to me? You know, once I start laughing, I don't stop. That's true. <laughs>